Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. Today, we're considering the legendary yet very true tale of one Ohio woman whose legacy has only grown since her death nearly a century ago. She was among our country's first international celebrities, touring the world to critical acclaim, performing for royalty, filling venues with tens of thousands of adoring fans. Rising from a childhood of poverty and abuse, she seized what opportunities came her way and built a path to fame with them. While some of her deeds have long faded, her carefully honed reputation remains intact and within the collective memories of Ohioans today. She was living proof that we are not bound by our circumstances. We are not bound by our gender roles. Sometimes, just what we achieve results from the adversity we must overcome. Some lore arises from fantastic and otherworldly claims. Some lore arises from mysterious tales told around the campfire. And yet some lore, the kind of which we're exploring today, is the rarest of them all. This lore springs forth from truth so large and so profound that we just can't help but be in awe. I'm talking about the legend of Annie Oakley. Her name, itself, evokes an image of a girlish woman in Western attire, complete with fringes, a wide-brimmed hat, and boots. Her demure frame stands a sharp contrast to the outsized rifle resting casually in her gloved hands. Or perhaps we picture her double-barreled shotgun raised to her shoulder, her eyes glaring down the sights at the target, soon to be decimated. Annie was an athlete. Annie was a fighter. And yet she was so much more than that. Few of us know the true tale of how this remarkable woman came to be. Most of us only know the persona, the curated image this sharp businesswoman developed and honed over decades. It's a character that persists in our cultural heritage today. Annie Oakley, the stage figure, lives on in the oft-performed Irving Berlin musical, Annie Get Your Gun. She's been the subject of many films, books, television series, and plays. Her male counterparts in the American lexicon include Daniel Boone, Johnny Appleseed, and Paul Revere. Yet like so many larger-than-life figures, her true history is little known to the masses. And like most of these stories, just a little digging uncovers truths that outweigh the hype. What I have to present to you today doesn't come from some filmmaker's biopic. It doesn't come from some playwright's dramatic rendering of her storied life. The following tales derive from Annie's own telling. In the weeks following her death in November 1926, her personal memoir was published in newspapers. Many outlets ran a series of 15 articles in total in order to publish the work in full. These stories added up to an autobiography of sorts. 
They allowed her fans to learn the truth of how little Phoebe Ann Moses grew into the icon she is yet today. Come, hear her story, derived from her own telling. Annie Oakley was born Phoebe Ann Moses on August 13, 1860, in the tiny speck of a village called Woodland in Ohio's Dark County, less than 20 miles from the Indiana state line. At age two, her brother was born, the first son after six daughters. With all these mouths to feed, everyone had to contribute. Annie watched her father butcher young steers in late autumn. The smoked meat was needed to support the family through the long winter ahead. Its hide would be tanned to make shoes for the lot of them. Vegetables from the garden were canned, and fruits turned to preserves. All of it was stored under dry straw beds and covered with soil to prevent freezing. These were the plentiful days. Then came the blizzard of November 1865. At only five years old, the memory of that sudden storm would stay with her the rest of her life. Jacob Moses, Annie's father, had set out early one morning toward a grist mill with the wagon full of wheat and corn. The 14-mile journey was mostly unremarkable. The air was crisp but temperate, nothing out of the ordinary for late November. Yet on his return, a violent winter wind struck up. Jacob had only a jacket and no gloves as he drove the horse onward from his open-air bench seat. Hours later, the wagon wheels crunched against the newly fallen snow as the horse led the wagon down the long drive of the Moses family farm. Before falling into semi-consciousness, Jacob had looped the reins around his neck. His hands had frozen solid and had become useless. He could not speak. Were it not for the horse's knowledge of the way home, he would have certainly never made it. In a rush, the family carried him indoors and placed him before the fireplace. No doctor could come through the storm. They'd have to do their best to nurse him. Days later, Annie would recall the wagon, yet stuck in feet of snow. It seemed to symbolize her father's own inability to recover from the effects of the storm. A doctor would eventually arrive, but much too late to be of much use. Over the next few weeks, Jacob Moses would suffer debilitating effects from exposure and hypothermia before dying the following February. Two days after burying him, his widow and seven children would be evicted from the homestead. The grieving family took what meager possessions they had and moved to a smaller farm four miles down the road. Annie's mother, Susan, had been granted a two-year lease by a generous neighbor. Like all the children, Annie worked from sunup to sundown. With their father gone, each family member, no matter how small, had to give all they had to make ends meet. Despite the stress of it, Their mother always made time in the evenings to just enjoy one another's company. They sang hymns and told stories. These were the sweet times that Annie remembered dearest, 
and they lasted up until her eldest sister contracted tuberculosis. Their mother would sell their prized dairy cow to pay for her medical bills. It wasn't enough to save her. She died at only 15 years old. Destitution was taking root within the struggling family. The harvest was several months away, and Annie's mother had no idea how she would feed them all. It was this desperation that led little Annie toward a clever solution. Using heavy corn stalks and twine, she made traps of her own design and headed for the densest part of the woods. They worked. Using grains of corn as bait, she was bringing home quail, squirrels, and pheasants, enough so that the family had meat for dinner every evening. In fact, she brought home so much game that her mother took to selling it to the local grocer. Little Annie took great pride in these successes, yet found herself wanting to do even more. Her late father's 40-inch cap-and-ball Kentucky rifle had been collecting dust since his death. It rested on a rack above the fireplace. Against the wishes of her mother and sisters, who felt guns were men's business, she took it when they weren't looking. With her little brother, John, as an accomplice, the two carried it and the powder horn out into the woods. At only eight years old, Annie recalled her first kill from the rifle. It was a cottontail rabbit. She'd got it all right, only she'd managed to fracture her nose in the process. The kickback from the shot had thrown the butt of the rifle into her face. Annie had to come up with some story to account for the injury. She knew her mother just wouldn't allow her to be out there hunting like a man. However, one evening... When the fireplace was burning steadily, little sparks began dancing across the floor. It seemed Annie and her brother had spilled some of the powder while removing the horn from the wall. The children braced themselves for a scolding which was sure to follow. And in a moment of great surprise, they watched as their mother began wordlessly sweeping up the loose powder. Without making eye contact with them, she simply stated, that the next time they needed the gun, that they ask her for it, and that she would remove the horn from the wall without spilling its contents. From then on, no more criticisms were made of little Annie's unconventional skills with the rifle. The next unique chapter in Annie's life would begin with the entry of her stepfather, a Mr. Daniel Brumbaugh had showed up at the family farm one day and taken their mother with him. When the couple returned the next day, they announced that they had eloped. And just like that, the lot of them were instructed to pack up their belongings. They were moving to the newly built home in town located next to Mr. Brumbaugh's business. Annie's hunting trips into the woods were over. Stuck in the confines of civilization, Annie was miserable. She longed for the freedom of the country and pestered her mother about it every chance she got. When her mother's lifelong friend offered to take Annie in for a while, everyone jumped at the chance. For a period of a few weeks, 
Annie would live with the couple and their two children. The husband was superintendent of the infirmary, which was a government facility that served as a poorhouse and orphanage. One man from the community had come to the infirmary, looking for an orphan girl that might help his wife with the housework and in caring for a newborn baby. While surveying the girls under the infirmary's care, he came across Annie while she was working there. He was impressed by her and inquired whether he might take her home. Annie was uncertain about the arrangement, but was easily convinced when she heard she would be allowed to trap and shoot as much as she'd like. In short order, a letter was sent to Annie's mother, asking for consent. With Annie's urging, her mother agreed. Thus began the next dark chapter in young Annie's life. For about the first month, Annie recalled blissful days of hunting, bringing home her prized kills. It was almost more than she could have hoped for. And then one morning, Annie was struck awake by the he-wolf, as she would later come to call him. It was 4 a.m. She was to make breakfast, feed the cows, wash the dishes, skim the milk, feed the pigs, pump the water, feed the chickens, rock the baby, weed the garden, make the dinner, and dig potatoes. Annie's hunting days were over. Her life would become one of servitude. Annie's mother had been writing letters to the family, requesting her return. The he-wolf had written letters in response, pretending to be Annie, proclaiming how much she was enjoying her time and that she was doing well at school. And so our young heroine, who had grown so skilled and resourceful, was herself ensnared, the same as any pheasant that wandered into one of her own homemade traps. The monotony of endless labor drug onward for Annie until one harsh winter day. In a moment of clumsiness, she had toppled over a basket of socks she was set to darn. In a rage, the she-wolf struck a forceful blow across her ear and threw her out into the snow. She'd locked her out of the cabin. Annie had no shoes and no coat. Within moments, her feet grew numb, then her hands. No doubt her mind wandered to her father's arduous journey home through a blizzard that would eventually kill him. In an effort to calm herself, Annie began reciting prayers she'd learned as a little child. Only her lips had frozen stiff and her voice was gone. After a time that felt like an eternity, the she-wolf flung open the door and demanded that Annie come inside. By then... Annie's muscles had grown so stiff that she couldn't even walk. Believing Annie was disobeying her, the she-wolf leapt forward and drug her limp body across the threshold. She pushed her into a chair before the fire. Soon, the he-wolf had returned and demanded to know the meaning of Annie's insolence. She tried to answer him, but her tongue had swollen, and the words she uttered were incomprehensible. When he demanded that Annie rise from the chair, she fell over onto the floor, her muscles yet unresponsive and numb. Her limp body was then drug up the stairs to her bed. 
She was brought nothing to eat or drink and was left to her own devices. She suffered recurring dreams of the whole affair and woke herself up screaming, let me in. After a slow and painful recovery, Annie made a secret vow to herself to escape. Her opportunity would come the following spring when an especially beautiful day led the family to head out for a picnic. Annie was to stay home and complete the ironing. As soon as they were out of sight, she began packing her meager belongings. She headed straight for the depot and boarded the next passenger train. When the conductor came by to collect her ticket, she acknowledged, staring at the floor, that she hadn't any. She confessed that she was running away and that all she had with her was 48 cents. Annie could read from the conductor's expression that she didn't have enough for the fare. That's when the kind gentleman sitting beside her reached forward with his wallet open and offered to pay her way. As the conductor moved on, Annie's story spilled out of her, the entire saga, and the gentleman listened. The Good Samaritan, as she would come to call this gentleman, insisted on paying her fare through to the end of the rail line. He then provided her dinner at a fancy hotel before sending her on a connecting train, which would drop her at the town nearest her mother's home by 3.15 that afternoon. And just like that, the Good Samaritan passed out of her life, yet she remembered his kindness through to the end of her days. She'd pray every night for the good man that helped her escape the wolves. On finally disembarking at the last stop, Annie ran the rest of the way. When she reached the stoop of the house her stepfather built, she pounded loudly on the door. In breathless wonder, Annie stepped back as an unfamiliar face greeted her on the door's opening. The middle-aged woman explained that her mother and the rest of the family had not lived there for quite some time. Her stepfather had become debilitated by a bad knee, and then her mother had come down with typhoid. The deed went into foreclosure just as her mother gave birth to yet another daughter. Then, her stepfather died, leaving her mother and siblings once again destitute. As far as the middle-aged woman knew, they had returned to the area of Annie's own childhood, the flattened cornfields of rural Dark County. The woman took pity on Annie, who must have been a sight to see, stooped over and breathless from running. She convinced her to come inside and have a bite to eat and to rest. Annie agreed, although truth be told, she would have been too exhausted to do otherwise. She'd awaken early the next morning, before the sun, and headed out into the darkness, toward home. By 10.30 that morning, she finally reached them. They wailed on seeing her, the lot of them falling into an embrace. Most of all, Annie remembered seeing her new baby sister for the first time. After the emotions quieted, they got to the business of catching up. Annie learned that the situation wasn't quite as dire as she had been told. Her mother, a creative and resourceful woman herself, had begun nursing homebound folks. She was a traveling nurse of sorts. 
The income was meager, but enough to keep the family out of poverty. For the first time in years, Annie returned to school with her siblings. She began a life resembling some kind of normalcy until one day, when Annie was at the chalkboard working a math problem, a violent rapping came at the door of the one-room schoolhouse. Everyone turned to see the door flung wide and the he-wolf step across the threshold. He'd come to bring Annie back. He marched toward her, grabbed her by the arm and twisted it, and drug her out the door. Annie's teacher and a handful of classmates gave chase and screamed for him to let her go, but to no avail. In seconds, the horse-drawn wagon was headed down the road with Annie and the he-wolf in tow. She planned to jump from the wagon and was trying to decide just what spot would provide the best chance of an escape. He'd be sure to run after her. As luck would have it, no escape plan was needed. Unbelievably, they turned down the road where the superintendent of the infirmary lived. He was out for a walk and stopped the wagon in its tracks. On recognizing the he-wolf, he invited them to dinner. Not wanting to call any suspicion to himself, the he-wolf agreed. On finally entering the home where Annie had spent a few weeks years earlier, she took the wife aside and gave the whole harrowing story. The wife took great pity on Annie and felt much guilt for having sent her to live with such a family. She demanded the he-wolf leave and that Annie stay with them. He clenched his fists, snarled, and declared that Annie was his to do with as he pleased. At that, the superintendent and a hefty farmhand rose from the table, stepping toward him. And with that, the he-wolf finally relented and left empty-handed. Annie slept the most deep and carefree sleep that she could ever remember that night. When she awoke the next morning, her heart ached to return to her mother, but fear of the he-wolf coming for her yet again kept her from doing so. Word about the whole affair was sent to her mother, and each of the family members came to visit Annie. Eventually, all decided it was best for her to stay there at the superintendent's house. To pay her way, Annie would sew uniforms for orphans at the infirmary. What surplus income she made, Annie would send home to her mother. Annie's years of heartache and abuse, of hunger and destitution, had brought in her an appreciation for the gifts of hard work and ingenuity. Several months later, when her older sister Lydia was to be wed at the family home, Annie would finally decide to return for good. Her longing for wildflowers, for the rustling of leaves blowing through wide maples, for the thrill of the hunt, finally outweighed her fear of the he-wolf's return. She'd finally come to the realization that she had within her the ability to secure her own freedom, to live and do as she pleased. The very rifle that provided for her family in their desperate time of need would now provide her the confidence to live as she dared and let no fear limit her. If he were to come for her, 
she'd surely kill him where he stood. Thankfully, the he-wolf seemed to have given up on abducting young Annie, a decision which may have saved his life. This didn't mean that life was tranquil at the family homestead. By now, her mother, twice widowed, had taken a third husband. This older man, widowed himself, suffered financial straits of his own. This brought the family back into a place of strained resources and frequent doubts as to how and whether they could pay their bills. For most young women, such a scenario would have depressed and overwhelmed the spirits. Not for Annie Oakley. She knew just what the situation required. It was now that her sharpshooting skills rose to proportions never before seen by locals. She returned from daily hunting trips with dozens of quail and rabbit in tow. They had to be tied into packages just to keep the inventory manageable. This vast surplus of game brought incredible wealth as the family began selling not only the meat, but the skins. Although she would eventually go on to be lauded and praised by heads of state around the world, Annie would remember these victorious days as the most sweet and happy. She was with her family, they were fed, and they were together. And it was all largely due to her own plucky skill with the rifle, not to mention her unfailing resolve to survive an abusive past. Not only was the family fed, soon enough, they built a new cabin to accommodate all their needs. The house was raised in a week, and expert carpenters completed the finishing touches. The day after the home was finished, Annie surprised her mother by handing over a sum of money, large enough to pay the mortgage in full. Annie was only 15 years old. Days later, Annie received a letter from a Mr. Frost. He was the proprietor of a Cincinnati hotel that had been purchasing large numbers of her game rabbits for inclusion on the menu at the hotel's restaurant. Mr. Frost had approached a famous sharpshooter, a Mr. Frank Butler, who was now in the area. He had hoped a public match between the two of them might draw a crowd, not to mention a demand for hotel accommodations. He hadn't disclosed Annie's identity to Mr. Butler, but only described her as a, quote, party up the country. Mr. Butler had a few days before having to leave for his next match in some far-off city. He agreed to Mr. Frost's offer of participating in the impromptu match and had placed a bet of $100. Would Annie be interested in putting forth the same bet for a chance at doubling her money? Mr. Frost would provide room and board for herself and an escort if she agreed. There was no hesitation. Annie and her brother set for Cincinnati immediately. It was the first time either of them had set foot in a city. For another great surprise, Annie's mother, sister, and brother-in-law made the long journey just to witness her first of many sharpshooting matches. Yet the real surprise belonged to Frank Butler on realizing his opponent was a petite, shy-looking girl of 15 years. After he won the toss, Frank aimed his rifle upward and shouted pull. 
and one pigeon bounded into the sky after being released from a trap. It soon fell dead. Then it was Annie's turn. Her aim was just as exact, though her knees were knocking. The spectators started crowding in, amazed at just what this tiny country girl could do. And so it went, on and on, as both sharpshooters met their marks every time. Well, that is until the 25th pigeon evaded Frank's first bullet, only to fall dead outside the boundary line. A sure miss. This was Annie's chance. Another point would win her the match. Just before yelling pull, Annie caught the gaze of her mother. They locked eyes, and Annie grinned at her, a kind of pre-victory celebration. Blinking once, she then signaled the pigeon's release. Her aim was just as deadly as it had been for the previous 24 pigeons. With that, she won the match, and the hearts of all who saw it happen. In a show of great sportsmanship, Frank Butler handed over the winnings and sat her upon his own carriage as the crowd roared. The whole experience proved a complete exhilaration for her. It became the fulcrum on which the rest of her life would turn. Frank would insist that she travel with him, onward to future planned shooting matches. And in short order, the two would form not only a business partnership, but a life partnership. Annie would marry him. Their love would endure the rest of their lives. An uncommon man himself, Frank Butler would never show signs of pride or insecurity about his wife's sharpshooting skills, which proved to be better than his own. He would support her unconventional choice of occupation and even become her chief promoter and manager as she gained fame and fortune around the world. The next phases of Annie's life would become well-known to all and recorded for the ages. She'd soon assume the stage name, Annie Oakley, presumably derived from the neighborhood in Cincinnati called Oakley, where she and Frank Butler would come to live. Her biggest ride to fame would come when she signed on to the Buffalo Bills Wild West show, an extravaganza of Western acts that traveled the country and then the world. Annie would become one of its main attractions. She would come to symbolize the rough and tough nature of the American cowgirl, so different from her demure and proper counterparts in old European society. The crowds just couldn't get enough of her. We could go into great detail about the middle part of her life, her rise to stardom, and all the trappings that came along with it. I'm skimming the details here, not because they are uninteresting or unworthy, but simply because these are the parts of her life known to so many of us already, like her unexpected friendship with the chief of the Sioux tribe, Sitting Bull, her performances before throngs including European royalty, her mind-bending stunts like shooting targets while riding a bicycle or while standing astride a running horse. One of her favorite bits was to purposely miss an easy shot just to hear the audience gasp. She'd then feign embarrassment for the crowd before moving on to much more difficult stunts, like shooting behind her back using a mirror. And she'd never miss once. 
After completing one final tour of Europe, Annie and her husband returned home. By then, they'd been married 50 years. For a few years, they'd take up again with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. One day, she and the rest of the show's crew were traveling by train through South Carolina to their next venue. Their train collided with another, and the resulting wreck left Annie pinned under twisted timbers and metal. Through it all, she remained conscious and directed rescue workers on how they might remove the heaping mass and free her. On finally extracting her, she was removed to a hospital, where it was determined she suffered a severe spinal injury. The left side of her body was partially paralyzed, and the pain was nearly unbearable. She would undergo multiple surgeries. It would be more than a year before she was well enough to leave her home. As soon as she was able, Annie again hit the road, performing for audiences across the country. Her trigger finger worked just fine, as did her eye on the target. As World War I ramped up, Annie offered her services to the government in teaching young soldiers to shoot. For weeks, she traveled from one camp to the next, offering exhibitions on sharpshooting skills. She would also become an advocate for women in promoting their right to self-defense, including use of firearms for protection. It seems her early experiences with the family she dubbed Wolves left a lasting influence on her life's purpose. Annie Oakley would die of pernicious anemia on November 3, 1926, in Greenville, Ohio, the seat of Dark County, where she'd been born and raised. She was 66 years old. Newspapers across the country heralded her death with the following obituary. In the hills of Dark County, where the girl, Annie Oakley, learned to handle a rifle, will rest the ashes of the noted marksman, who was perhaps the greatest woman shooter of all time. Mrs. Frank Butler, better known in this and other countries as Annie Oakley, marksman and showwoman, died here last night at the home of friends. She was 66 years old. The body will be cremated in accordance with her wishes, and the ashes will be interred in a little cemetery of the village of Brock, just a few miles from where she was born. She was the friend of monarchs and the confidant of Chief Sitting Bull. Acquaintanceships with sovereigns of Europe colored her brilliant career, but one of the most picturesque episodes of her life was her close relationship with the taciturn old Indian chief, who greatly admired her shooting ability. Sitting Bull called her Little Sure Shot, and when he died, left her all of his personal belongings. Annie Oakley could shoot perfect scores consistently. During one of her European tours, King George V of England told her she was the best shot in the world and awarded her a medal. Once in the early 80s, Annie Oakley, with the bullet from her rifle, flicked the ashes from a cigarette held in the lips of Crown Prince Wilhelm of Germany. She won fame as a showwoman with Buffalo Bill Cody's troupe. Cody engaged her after one exhibition of her shooting, 
It was during her tours abroad with this show that she came in contact with royalty. Annie Oakley started her career shooting game in the hills around this section. She was in her teens when she met Frank Butler, then regarded as an expert rifleman, and not long after, she was widely known. Injuries received in a train accident in 1901 resulted in one side of her body being almost completely paralyzed. Some of her best records for straight and fancy shooting, however, were made after she recovered. At Pinehurst, North Carolina, in 1922, she broke 100 clay targets straight from the 16-yard mark. Her husband, who was her manager, has been seriously ill in Detroit for several days. He is the only survivor. The funeral services Saturday will be private. Frank Butler, fellow sharpshooter and love of her life, would die only 18 days later on November 21st. It's said that he refused to eat after learning of Annie's death. It seems he lost the will to live. The legend of Annie Oakley remains in our public consciousness for a number of reasons. Of course, she represents a slice of Americana that's been celebrated all over the world. Her life epitomizes the rugged individualism espoused by our culture. Her true rags-to-riches story, her ability to create a path forward where none seem to exist, is a narrative we're all drawn toward. Annie was born into a time when women's roles were specific and rigid. She was not to be a provider or protector. She was meant for rearing children and keeping house. In the end, she chose neither. And somehow, she got the world to celebrate her for it. Therein lies her true superpower. Sure, her sharpshooting skills outmeasured all others of her time and quite possibly of our time. While shooting made her a celebrity, a deeper wisdom guided her forward and kept it all from collapsing in the way it would have for so many others. Annie was so much more than a sharpshooter. She was a survivor. She was a businesswoman. She was a trailblazer. She took one look at the parameters set for her by her gender and plowed forward with her own agenda and made it happen. She'd done all this in an era when women couldn't vote, when most women couldn't own land, and when many women never received an education. So the next time you find yourself struggling against outward forces and doubting you'll have the grit to make it through, remember one young woman from Dark County who took the anguish life gave her and turned it into something extraordinary. This concludes today's episode on The Legend of Annie Oakley. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. You can also find Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering. Keep wondering.